I had the president of Havana Seminary with me. He had flown into here, and I, he and I have been buddies for years now, young man. He had never seen a football game. There's soccer and baseball in Cuba, football. He didn't even know a rule, but he was rooting for the Chiefs. And he was doing that out of the safety because my daughter and all of her family were there and they're chief fans. And so, but we had a great time and he, he, he got a little taste of Americana and our Sunday night celebrations with football. And then my wife was coming this morning, but COVID hit our church and there and the pianist and some others were all sick. So she had the Sunday off to come with me. And so she's at, on the piano again. So we'll try to rearrange so she can get here again. She was, was disappointed, but wanted to come. And then I really had an interesting week this week. I was working on my income taxes. You know, that's, yeah, some of you are ooh in at that point. I was really nervous. First year retirement, didn't know what to expect. Uh, I've I made a lot of money the last couple of years and, and the church uh, at, when I left in February gave me a huge love offering for my 30 years there and it was like 30,000 bucks that they gave me and that's self-employed tax and all that other stuff on all of that they didn't withhold any of it so I'm sitting there working on my taxes and I told my wife I set aside about $10,000 I think we're going to get stung this year and so I'm doing it and I'm, I've got my iPad and I got my uh, uh, tax software and I'm going through it and I sold a house and made more money off the house than we ever thought possible. I put all that in there, hit it to see what I owed. I owed $68,000. I nearly cried. That can't be right. I see five to ten but not 68. So I got on the phone and called my tax expert in San Antonio and said, the preacher needs help. So we walked through the whole thing. He says, you claim, you put your house in there? I said, yeah. He said, how much do you make? I said, about 300000 He said, you have to make a half a million, so you don't put it in there. I said, I can take it out? Yes. So I took it out, hit the thing again, and the government's paying me $2,300. <laughs> My grandmother would have been proud. She was charismatic. And you don't know how close I was to being in tongues at that particular moment. So I'm a lot happier than I was on Monday uh, since that all unfolded. So, all right. We're going to look at a section of scripture that you may go through quickly. You might, especially verse 19. You know uh, 19 and, and 20. 20 is famous too for Jesus being the cornerstone. But... We don't probably deal a whole lot with these verses, but these may be some of the most important verses that you ever deal with because you're getting a second time looking at where you come from and what God's doing in your life. It's been about 10, 11 years ago, I was invited to Washington, D.C. to, to um, speak. Now, in the morning at the session, it's a huge congregation of people there, and the first speaker of the morning was a man who I'd never heard before. His name was Tony Evans. The second man speaking with Jack Hibbs from California. He's very famous in California. Huge church. He was second. Third was Elmer Towns, the founder of, Lo of Liberty University. And I was number four. Steve Branson, some guy from San Antonio. All three of these are very famous men. In fact, Elmer Towns when I was in seminary, it was one of the most famous authors in America. I, 
I was even shocked he was still alive. Uh, he was in his late 80s and still going strong. And so we're sitting there, and I've never heard Tony. I really didn't know anything about Tony Evans uh, other than, you know, I know he'd written some books. I know he was well-known up in this area. But when he got to preaching that, night, that morning, I have never heard a speaker like him. He's gifted in speech like a way I have never seen nor heard. And, and Jack Gibbs is sitting there, and he's also very accomplished. And he turns to me and says, Dr. Branson, you want to take my place? I said, no way. There's no way I'm getting up in that pulpit when Tony Evans comes down. He says, please. I said, you've done this before. This is my first huge event to ever speak at in my entire life. And old Elmer's sitting there. He said, Pastor Branson. I said, yes, stay behind me. I said, why? He said, because you're going to sound good after I finish. But well, we got through it. But he was and I were having dinner that night. My dad joined me. And Elmer said, Steve, you know the problem is we forget that all of us are saved by grace. We all have been given certain skills and ability. And we all play a part in the kingdom of God. And not one person is better than the other. And so we really should never be afraid of whoever we're speaking in front of or who we're speaking. We're all gifted by God's grace. And we're only doing what we do by his grace and by his mercy. Well, I want to bring that home today because... Paul's key theme when we get to chapter 4 is, is unity, that we are one in the body of Christ. He really is laying it down now in this particular passage. And if there's a problem with American Christianity, it is that many times in our Christian walk, we're too short-sighted, are focused, and we're too self-centered on how we view our Christian walk. As a pastor of the last 45 years, if I've seen anything, most people, church is just an individual type of thing for me, and not much past it. And that is not even close to true. That is not what Christianity is about. Pastoring in a church for 30 years, I would, I, towards the end, I had to do a funeral. And I did a funeral for a member of my church who was there every single Sunday of my 30 years in the pulpit. I shook their hand every Sunday as they walked out the door. I've always stood by the door. I've always done that. I've shaken as many hands as I can, thanked everybody for being there that morning. And I have done them. I say, how are the kids? How are the grandkids? Da, 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 da. But when it came time to do the funeral, I knew absolutely not one thing about that person. All they do is come to Sunday morning worship, sit in the balcony, and then walk out. They never got involved. Nobody in the church knew them. It was one of the smallest funerals I ever have done. They were faithful, good people. I always thought about that since, how they missed out on the greatness of what Christianity really is. And that's being with believers and celebrating life together. And that's what this passage is about. So I want you to stand. I'm going to read Ephesians 2, 11 through, I've been doing 11 through 22, but I'm going to read 19 through 22. You're familiar with 19 and 20. Here's what it says. You're no longer strangers or aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints. And you're of God's household. You've been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now, Father, speak to us in a clear way. Help us to see that each one of us are being fitted together in this amazing building that you are building. Help us to grasp and understand this truth because it will impact and influence how we live our lives. 
Now watch over and guide us, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. So what Paul's going to do, starting in verse 11, if you'll glance back up there, he's going to remind us again of your former life before you came to Christ. He's already done that in verses 1 through 3. We did that uh, two weeks ago. And he laid out more in an individual way in that passage 1 through 3, how it applies to each one of us ourselves. But now he's taking it to a corporate level and putting us all together. Now, let's remember who Paul's audience is when he writes this letter to Ephesus. He started by teaching in the synagogue. And he went there and he was beginning to sway some people with the gospel of Christ Jesus as he reasoned with them daily in the synagogue. But it came to a point that many became hardened and they became disobedient to him. And in the Greek, it's in the perfect tense, which means that this was who they were. They weren't going to let it go. They were going to fight this thing all the way to the very end. And they became Paul's enemies there at Ephesus from then on. And everything he would have done, they would have been against him. See, when you get to tough times like this and people get squeezed in tough times, you find out who really is in Christ and who's not really in Christ. And so this group of Jews demonstrated they had understood nothing of God's word. And so they became the battle against Paul. So he went out and went to the school of Tyrannus and he began to teach there. And in the process, God does the most amazing work in Ephesus. Remember the temple of Diana is here? Seven wonders of the world is in this place. This influences, impacts all the culture of Ephesus. And there becomes later riots because the business of all the idol makers, the silversmiths, was plummeting because people were walking away from the temple of Diana, the great wonder of the world. And they were the caretakers of this temple that the god Diana had given to them. And people were walking away from that. And it caused unbelievable difficulties. And yet to that, Paul is speaking to this people. And the word of God was growing mightily and prevailing. So you had conflict all the time. And if I get to uh, 2 Timothy and make that a part of this, Paul tells Timothy, I got, you got five troublemakers in your church at Ephesus. And he calls each one of them by name. He says, be careful of Alexander the coppersmith. He calls me a lot of harm. He's going to cause you some harm. Just beware of him. Just know that that's going on. And yet in the midst of this, God was doing a work and bringing a people together. Sometimes God's greatest works are done in the most difficult of situations where God begins to bring together a people in a very special way. And so when we get to verse 11, he's reminded them now as a people. And he uses the word Gentile. Now, that doesn't mean a whole lot to any of us. Gentile is one of those churchy words. But let me tell you the Greek word, ethnos. We get ethnic, ethnicity. But it really means nations. What he's saying is, you people of the nations. Now that could be fascinating if I start thinking back Old Testament into New Testament about what's this to do with nations. If I go back to after the flood, when God destroyed the world by the flood, and Noah and his family are the only ones to survive, it is thereafter tying in with the Tower of Babel that God will divide the world up into 70 nations. And we are told that when he divided us up into 70 nations, that he did this in an interesting way. He did it according to the number of the sons of gods. It's a reference back to Genesis 6, the sons of gods coming down and sleeping with the, the women and producing children. There was evidently some hierarchy of the sons of God, and every one of them were given a nation. It's in Jewish history. It's in the Old Testament scripture. It's not something we think a whole lot about. 
But from then on, that's the world, the nations, influenced by the idolatry, the greed, the brokenness of human nature. That's what every one of us come out of. Every one of us comes from the nations. I bet in America we really make that more interesting than anywhere else in the world. My family is from Scotland, uh, from England. Some, my wife's family is from Germany. And in reality, even in America, we come from the nations. Now, we came to America because somebody in my family was stealing horses and they had to get away from Scotland. So we didn't have the greatest start to get here. But we're here. But we're of the nations. And the nations are separated from God. And so what Paul's telling the church at Ephesus, guys, you Gentiles, you people from all the nations that are here in Ephesus, you need to know something. You're separated from Christ. Now, he's speaking to believers, but what he's talking about is because you're not a part of God's chosen people, you're part of the nations, you have nothing to do with this whole promise of the Messiah. It has nothing to do with you. It was given to the Jewish people that a Messiah was coming and they were looking for that. He said you're excluded from the citizenship of Israel, which means you're alienated from them. It's perfect tense, which means this. You weren't getting in. There's no way you could break into what God's doing in his kingdom. And you were strangers. You hear the word thrown around all the time in political discussion about xenophobia. That's literally what the word stranger there is, xeno. It just means you're a foreigner. It means you're somebody who's outside and you're not allowed in because you're not a citizen. But here's where he comes with this now. And this is a reminder to all of us. We have no hope. You have no hope. None. Because you're without God in the world. That's what he tells the church. And so I'm doing all right. You know, one of the things I do, there, there are four of us on the text. I may have mentioned that before. We talk constantly as a professor from UTSA, uh, finance professor, uh, retired military, uh, and then an English professor from Houston. And the four of us have known each other for years. We've served together at Village Parkway for 30 years together. And so we stayed in touch. Uh, three of us are retired. The other is still working. Well, the other day, one of them said, I read, just read Tolstoy's The Death of Ivan Eilich. Now, I'm not doing much reading like that anymore. I used to read like that. And they were talking, the English professor and my friend, who's the finance professor, were talking about that book. So I got on my iPad. I downloaded Tolstoy's book. It was 102 pages. And I sat down and read it in about two hours. I went through the whole thing start to finish. I was stunned when I read the book. I don't normally read like that. I read in other areas. But I, I, I even told them later when I texted back, I said, you know what amazes me? When I read Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, I was stunned at his insight into human nature. And how could he come up with those kind of stories? Brilliance. There's a brilliance there that's beyond much of what any of us can do. And I, I was amazed by that. Even one time when I was in England, I was there, we're at the bar where he and, uh, uh, just went blank on the guy who wrote Lord of the Rings. Dad, uh, you're right. <laughs> they would sit and drink beer. Evidently, they weren't Baptists. They would sit and drink beer <laughs> at that table. And they discussed the Lord of the Rings and, and the Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe and all the books that both of them had written. They would, just, they would go back and forth between each other. And so I sat at the table where they sat. I mean, there's plaques, everything's still there for when they were alive and sitting there. And I sat there trying to soak it in. It didn't work. 
I was no more smarter when I left than when I sat down at the place. But I've always been amazed by people who could do that. Well, Tolstoy is something none of us ever read anymore, but he's very famous and had great impact on America in the early days. But his insights were stunning because he took a story about a man named Ivan who lived a normal life, who had a pretty good job. He was just average folk. He wasn't anybody famous or anything else. He writes a story about his wife and his kids. Uh, this man eventually gets sick in his 40s, and he eventually dies when he's 40 years of age. It's one of those books you say, if somebody told you you ought to read this because it's this kind of story, you go, gosh, that's not any good. But here's what I found fascinating, is how self-centered and greedy and hopeless people were, and how Tolstoy saw through that. When Ivan's on his deathbed, his daughter walks in one time and just quietly goes, I wish you weren't here anymore. I don't have time to worry about you being sick. His wife would come in. If you'd do what the doctor said, you wouldn't be laying here right now. His friends suddenly don't come around anymore because he's sick and frail and going fast. There was nothing he could do. He was going to die. That was going to happen. And he's laying there one day, and he's thinking in his mind, what do I want right now? He'll be dead in about a week, but what do I want? I want to go back to life where it was before I got sick. But you know, the more I think about it, it wasn't good then. My wife and I, all we did was fight. Kids have never really cared much for me, and work was nothing but a battle with everybody over who got ahead of who and who made how much. It was a lot of striving after the meaninglessness with absolutely no joy at all in life. And you say, okay, that's just a novel. Listen, guys, I've stood, I've watched people, I've been with so many people who've gone, been at the end and passed away as a pastor. You'd be surprised how often I hear that story all the time and see it among people. What Paul's telling this church is this, you guys had no hope and God had no part in your life. And you were not a part of the promises And if we quit right there, then we're going to live like Ivan Illich did. Live and die, and that's it, and it's over. And if that was true, there's no reason to even be here today, no reason to even sing a song or do anything that we've done this morning. But yet, notice what he does now in verse 13. He uses a conjunction again, just like he did in verse 5. Verse 4. Remember, he says, you're dead in your trespasses and sin. You're influenced by Satan. You're influenced by the world. You're influenced by the lust of your flesh. You're influenced by the spirit of the age. You're children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, with great love which he loved you, made you alive. Astounding truths given to every single one of us in this room who are in Christ Jesus. That but God changed the whole formula. Well, when you get here, he's reemphasizing now, not from an individual thing, but corporately to all the people there in Ephesus. He is saying this in verse now number 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, may I state again, there's that in Christ. Some of you last week I made reference to, you have underlined the in Christ found through the book of Ephesians. You've been as amazed as I was how often and many times it's in there, in him, in the beloved, in Christ. He's bringing this back again, but in Christ. And what we're reminded again is what Peter said when he's preaching that famous sermon in Acts 4, whenever he says there is salvation in no other name. 
For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which they may be saved. It is Jesus Christ. And he says this, but God, even though you are far off, you are excluded out, you have nothing to do with any of the promises of God, he has now brought you in. And he has done that by his blood. A couple weeks ago, we celebrated the Lord's Supper. That is a corporate celebration of God's people together saying that we are one in Christ. We're one together because of the blood of who Christ is and what he's done. It's an amazing celebration. And we're proclaiming his resurrection and the impact and influence it has. But what he's going to tell us here in verse 13 is he is able to bring us together, Jews and Gentiles, the nations. He brings us in and he does it because he is our peace. Now, there is a thing called the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. It's Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. But the peace here is a little bit different. The peace here is, first of all, it's peace with God. You were alienated from God. You were an enemy of God. Romans 5 says that. Colossians 1 says that. We, none of us had any opportunity to even come near him. Why? Because of our lives, our brokenness, what was wrong with us. But God made peace through his son Jesus, and we now have one with the Father in heaven. The second thing is that peace is now between people. Now, you know in the history of mankind the, the hatred that has been between Jews and the nation. You know, one of my bucket lists is still to go to Poland. I would like to go to the death camps. I've had a good friend that was imprisoned in one of the death camps, and he's told me the stories of what it was like in the death camps really don't need to see it, but just something about me, I wouldn't mind walking through and just looking at it. As he, tell, as he told me one day and opened up, which he very rarely did, of the horrors of it. And he said he was just a soldier who got caught early in the war and was a prisoner. And he watched all of this unfold. But he never could overcome the hatred that people had towards each other during those days. It was intense. And what he saw in Europe during the wars never left his heart and soul all that he saw unfold there has been a hatred that has been between peoples and nations and God is doing something he is bringing us together as one and with peace with each other and that's what this is about and so what he's doing is he's making one new man He's doing something very unique and special. This has been the plan from the very beginning, before the very foundation of the world, that God was going to bring together a people from nations to one nation, from all the nations to we're now part of Israel. Now, I'm not talking about the nation of Israel per se over in the Middle East. I'm talking about God's chosen people. We're considered to be part of all of that. Peter says this, you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellency of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. What I want you to grasp today simply is this. You and I are, a, are part of something that's bigger than anything you and I can ever imagine. This isn't just about coming to church in Greenville at Ridgecrest today. This is about what God's doing throughout the entire world. And how he's bringing together people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to be a part of his kingdom. We cannot fully see that now, but yet I think in another sense, we can. I don't know how much traveling you've done for mission trips and everything else. I know several of you have done a lot of that. I think you would join with me that one of the most fascinating things about going on mission trips 
And I've been to Central America about 30 times. I've been to Cuba 10 times. I've been over in Europe a couple times. I've been in the Middle East one time. I've been up in Canada several times. I've been all over the United States. It's that it doesn't matter where I go and I join in to work with people, we have a common bond quickly in Christ. I was in the jungles of Costa Rica. I was preaching English. A translator was translating English to Spanish, and another translator was translating Spanish to Quebecer Indian language. And we had one of the greatest worship services ever. And as afterwards, they were, they're coming up and they're asking a question. The Quebecer Indians would ask me a question and want the answer from the preacher from America. And it would go through two or three translators. And I would go back and we'd go back and forth. But I was amazed at an uneducated people who loved Christ and knew who he was that we had such a common interest and bond. Because that's part of what God's doing. He builds a people from all types of backgrounds and he brings them together. My church in San Antonio was a perfect example of that. It was a military church, so we had people who were in that church who were from every part of the world. We had people from the Far East. We had people from the Middle East. We had people from Europe. We had people from Russia. It's amazing how God was at work in that community, bringing people from every background there was. And I loved it. I grew up in Southeast Texas where there was only one race, and we were all white. I was in a part of the congregation 30 years that we were a little bit of everything you could ever imagine. Because see, that's what God's at work doing. He's bringing us together as one. May I make a point to you? Remember I started just lightly, I didn't go much detail about the nations? That there were 70 to start? Most of the time you don't notice that in Genesis 10. It's called the Hall of the Nations by a lot of theologians. You ever notice something when you're reading Acts 2 and Pentecost? Do you ever go through... If you're a serious Bible student and you start going through and you start looking at all the different places the people were from, do you know where they were from? Those 70 nations. Theologians and architects, uh, and architects, archaeologists have put that all together and realized those are the same locations. Pentecost was God beginning the work of bringing together into one what he had intended to do through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the entire time. And when I look at that, I keep going in my head now to Revelation 7. When John got to see into the heavens, he got to see stuff that we will not get to see until we go to heaven. He said, but I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count. Every nation, tribe, people, tongue, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, palm branches were in their hands and they cried out with a loud voice saying salvation to the God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There will come a day when God in all of his glory will bring us all together completely and we will all rejoice together. And we will come from every background that there is imaginable, but we all have one thing in common. We have been saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're a child of the King and we are now home. And I don't know about you, that is one of the greatest days I look forward to in my entire life. But we're not there. And the writer of Hebrews tells us in the 11th chapter that the men and women that he talks about in Hebrews 11, that they desired a better country. Now, I'm proud to be an American. Always have been. I love serving military church for 30 plus years and the men and women who gave great price and service so that you and I could have some of the freedoms. But I want you to know something. I got a better citizenship than being in America. I am a citizen of the kingdom of God. And that is important. And so what that does is now that begins to unfold something that should impact how you live your life each day. 
If you'll look at verse 19, the passage we read just a moment ago, we begin to get into that. And so what he's going to tell us then, you're no longer strangers and aliens. You're no longer outside anymore. God has brought you into the, his kingdom. He has brought you into his family. And what he begins to unfold is now, you are fellow citizens with the saints. You and I, who are in Christ, are fellow citizens. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus. I don't know if that means anything to you, but it should. It means every one of us are in the same boat together by God's grace. You're not more important than me, and I'm not more important than you. We have different skills and abilities and gifts that God has given us, but we're part of what he's doing. And we have been allowed the privilege to be a part of his kingdom. I don't know about you, I hold on to that. That is more important to me than anything else anybody can offer me. You know, my, my old pickup out there is getting a little cranky and my heater doesn't work. And so I'm waiting for the spring to get here so I can enjoy my ride here in the morning and not freeze to death. And so my wife said, you going to get a new pickup? I said, yeah, but the one I want costs $75,000. So no, we'll just wait. You know, I, I, I kind of want one, but I'm not going to go do it. I need to realize something. I already got something that's more valuable than that. I'm a part of his kingdom. And whether I have a pickup or not, old or new, it doesn't matter. It's not as big a deal. Guys, I hope you understand, if you're in Christ, what special position you have. But not only are you a part of that, notice what he says next. You're of God's household. We've been adopted. Romans 8 says he spirit testifies with our spirit that we're his children. I never forget when my sister came into our house the very first time. She was seven. I was 20. I was home from college. And I'd been working in the oil fields all day. I'd been hydroblasting a, a, a huge tower at one of the refineries. I'd had to climb up in the top of it and work my way down, cleaning the oil out of it and everything else. And so when I got home, I, I was covered in oil from head to toe. And I walked in the house, and my mom says, Meet your sister. Said, Hi there. My name's Tammy. My name's Steve. We visited a little bit. I went back to get cleaned up and mom about killed me walking through the house on her carpet with all that oil and stuff but I get back there and so I'm getting cleaned up and uh, Tammy asked my mom what's wrong with him because I look so horrible covered in oil she said now he's fine but when I came back out we're having dinner we're having our favorite dinner my mom when she made Mexican food that was our big deal that was a huge deal in my family and so we're sitting there just shooting a breeze catching up with the day and Tammy looks over and says, Mom, how about this? And I looked at her going, you can't call her mom. It's my mom. I didn't say that. But, I, you know, I'm not the greatest guy in the world at that point, but that's what I'm thinking. A lot of times there's a little bit of arrogance in all of us. I want you to know something. We've all been given the privilege to say, Father. Don't underestimate that. You've been brought a part of the family. For my mom, that was always important because she never really had a father. It took her a while to understand what a father was. But my mom 
You sang the song. It made my whole day this, this morning. How great thou art. My mom was a great singer. She sang that whenever she was cleaning house. So I just closed my eyes. I could see her pushing the vacuum cleaner. She must have been singing it to make it feel better or something. I don't know what. But she would sing How Great Thou Art. My mom prayed. She talked to the Father in Heaven in ways I've never probably done near half as well as she did because of her appreciation that she finally had a family. But we have been given a family. You guys are citizens and family. You live in Greenville and you're part of this church, but you're, you and I, and I'm from a different part of Texas, we're family. We're citizens. And we're built on the same thing, which is what? The foundation is the prophets and the apostles. That's just saying the word of God. It's what the Old Testament guys would give us in the prophecies. It's what the apostles, when they're teaching us and writing, we're all built on that. And the cornerstone is part of that foundation, which is Jesus, which sets the standard for the building that's going up. Everything is measured by the cornerstone. My son's a contractor. He builds houses. He's doing, I think, 11 right now. He says, if I don't get the foundation right, nothing works. Their last house, the concrete guys, did the foundation totally wrong, and it's been off-centered from the very beginning. And he's having to fight to try to get it kind of balanced out in this house. I'd never buy the house if, if, if I was being offered it, just knowing what he's told me. Because if the foundation's not right, nothing works. Well, you and I have come to understand something in the most powerful way. Our foundation is solid and secure. We used to sing a hymn, and occasionally you do it every so often. On Christ, a solid rock I stand, but it's more than a rock. It's a foundation. And the promises of what God said was true, and we can stand on that. And Christ is what measures all of that together. Now, what's God doing with us on the foundation? And this comes to the whole gist of the sermon today. Notice what he then says in verse 22. Really, in 21. This whole structure is being joined together, growing into a holy temple in the Lord. You and I are being built into a building. Peter makes an interesting statement in 1 Peter when he calls us. Have you ever noticed this? He calls us living stones. Almost doesn't make sense unless you understand because he's teaching the same thing in 1 Peter 2 that we're doing now in Ephesians 2. And that is God's building this building. It's called the temple. Now, a lot of people in America think there'll be another temple built in Jerusalem later on, the third temple. If you go over there and you go to this building close by where uh, the temple mount is, uh, they have everything ready to build the temple. And I got to see the menorah. It's taller than I am. It's 24 karat gold. They had it out in public with glass all around it. And they had four men with these, looks like Uzis, standing there guarding it. I don't know how expensive that, candle, that menorah is, but it was stunning. They have everything ready. Whether they build or not, I really don't care. Because God's already building a temple. That temple's being built right now. You can't see it, and yet I can. Every one of you here who are in Christ are one of the living stones in that building. And what he's doing is he's fitting it together, which means we're pretty cantankerous kind of people and trying to make any of us fit together cannot be the easiest work in all the world, but he's working that out so that we become this one building together. 
And one of the greatness of God's work in us is how he brings about together through people ability to love each other and to treat each other in the way that we're supposed to do it because of who Christ is. And we're on the same foundation. We have the same teaching, the same understanding, and we work through everything to try to get to the point that he is building this building. And I can tell you, I, I do know when Christ is coming again. I know exactly when he's coming. You want the time and date? Don't know the time and date. But I know when he's coming, when the last stone's put in the building, when the last person is called into the kingdom of God, and he looks at his son and said, now it's time to go. Now here's what's important about this temple that he's building. When it is finished, and Christ returns in all of his glory, he dwells with us in our midst. Revelations chapter 21. I read it at every funeral that I ever, that I ever do when I'm standing at graveside. I'm just going to read a part of it. I heard a loud voice saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. They shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will do this. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning. There will no longer be any crying. There will no longer be any pain. And as a 70-year-old, I really like that one. No more pain. Because everything will have passed away. Guys, this is what this is about. We're here today to celebrate the stunning work of Christ that took people from the nations and brought us together with the promises to the Jewish people. He's building us into one kingdom. We're citizens of it. We're part of his family. And he's building that building so that when that day comes and Christ comes, we join in with him. He dwells in our midst. And we get to live the life that you and I cannot even begin to fathom. So that leads me to close with this. What do you do with this? Okay, let's say it's pretty good teaching today and interesting insights but what does it have to do with life well first of all you got to know this no man can lay a foundation other than the one that's already laid and that's Christ so let me challenge you as a church we stay focused on who Jesus is always and we proclaim the gospel of Christ Jesus that's who we're about because there's no other foundation that's going to impact and change people's lives second is he says this, do you not know, this is in 1 Corinthians 3, do you not know that you're a temple of God? He's not talking about individually. The word you there is plural. You are singular, a temple. We're already a part of that. And God's spirit is already dwelling with us. Yes, we have the promise of future, but God's spirit's already dwelling within us. And then we have the warning. If any man <clears throat> tries to destroy the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that's what you are. Every one of you are holy. Now, you don't look it from up here, but you are. You are. The presence of God in you. You've been, all the word holy means you've been set apart. You're part of something very special that's going on in this world. You and I are the temple of God. And you know what you do with this? Paul later goes to 1 Corinthians 6, and he brings it home. He's talking about immorality, but when he concludes, he's going to say this. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Now, one of the things, since you guys have made me the interim pastor for the three months that I've been here, you've got me back in my study 
spending hours so that I could be prepared and ready to go when I stand up here. I kind of got a little lazy after I retired last February, but I'm back getting the thing. And I had always thought that when I read 1 Corinthians six nineteen, it was talking singular, that me, I'm his temple, but it's not. It's plural. You are a temple. You've been bought with a price. You're not your own. And then he says this, glorify God with your body. He's talking about the body of Christ. Your job here in Greenville as the body of Christ is to bring glory to God. To work together with all those who have joined with you here and to bring glory and honor to the Father in heaven. That's your mission. That's what this entire passage is about, is to help you understand you weren't a part of any of this, but God brought you in. He's given you these privileges, and now what he wants you to do is bring glory to him and how you live, how you treat people, how you speak, how you act. And in doing that and bringing glory, then you uplift the name of Jesus because there's no other foundation given to men but in Christ Jesus. I know for some here that doesn't have much meaning or much purpose at all, but for many of you in this room, it's who we are. It's who we are. We can't be other than who we are. And that is saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Therefore, walk in them. Walk in them. Father, we thank you for this day and for the privilege and honor you give us to study your word. We thank you for Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. It's a powerful letter trying to help us to grasp and understand not only the small picture of our individuality, but the big picture of what we're all a part of. And so, Father, I pray today that this will sink in to all of us in this room, that we will grasp and understand this amazing opportunity we've been given to be citizens of your kingdom, to be a part of your family, to be able to join together with others and bring you honor and glory. That's the entire purpose of what you created us for, was to bring honor and glory to you and to your son through your spirit. So do your work in and through us this day is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.